This is Season 6, Episode 9, Neo-Peasantry with Artist as Family. Patrick and Meg, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, Meg. I'm really excited to connect and to see, yeah, to see what might come out of this conversation and what meaning we can make together. But I'd just love to start with a question I ask everyone, and that is, I'd love to hear from both of you, what's a vision of the world that you would like to see and how are you currently exploring or expressing that? Mm. Great question. Yeah. yeah, that's big up front. Um, yeah, so I think, um, well, culturally, politically, medically, um, spiritually, I guess, that I'd have to break it up a little bit. Uh, so culturally, um, Oh gosh, it's this is really big. Um, <laughs> what time is it in the day? Um, vision of the world. Um, well, a place where humans aren't the most important thing in the world. Um, a place where the humans that are in the world have. Equitable access to land and to good food and to good support, um, and I guess an education system of those of the human population that is earth honoring instead of earth extracting. Um, I'm sort of going into the micro here, but um, I don't know a a, a, re, a reconnection. Uh, a human reconnection with the sacredness of life, um, a human connection to a story. At the moment, our story is greed is okay, the biggest champions in our culture are the richest and most exploitative. I would love to see that story completely be turned on, on its head. Um, that yeah, that we ha- have a global culture that says greed is not okay. Lobbying of our political parties is not okay. Interference and infiltration of big corporate interests uh, is not okay. Um, yeah, at, but I think he had a bit more of a meta level um, coercion, manipulation, propaganda is not okay. And that we have tools to, yeah, we have a returned eldership. I'm jumping all over the place here, but we have a returned eldership that can spot coercion, manipulation and control of people. Um, So, yeah, I think they're just some sort of key points to maybe start with. What do you think? Yeah. Um, So when Patrick and I were first beginning our uh, sort of permaculture exploration, we went to a gathering in our town hall when you could still have gatherings in town halls and we saw there was a Cuban permie there who was speaking. His name was Roberto Perez and he said 
three things which really struck us. Um, one of them was uh, we all need to catch our own water, grow our own food and say hello to our neighbours. And when I heard him say those three very basic things, I thought, wow, how simple. And that is the world that I want to live in. That's the world that I want to be part of and that's the world that I want to give to. So just starting with those very basics, that's what we've really tried to build our life on, just the very simple <clears throat> fact of hands in the soil, what does a soil need? What is our soil type? What weeds are growing here? What do those weeds tell us about the soil type? That what does the soil, what is it lacking? What is it rich in? Therefore, the food that we grow, what are the minerals that it has? You know, the, what food can we grow here? What, are, what does annual mean? What is perennial? Where is the sun? You know, those basic um, uh, ideas of emplacing and how do we make home on this soil? What, what are the complexities of, of making home on stolen land? Um, and then for the water, you know, what sort of tank is best for my roof type? Um, when does it rain in this area? Um, how are we going to set up a life that we don't waste this, this precious resource so are we going to have composting toilets, dry composting toilets, and we don't have to flush our rainwater away? You know, these kinds of things, when, you know, we're going to put swales in our garden because then we can passively harvest the rain and we don't have to water. You know, these sort of things that we can put into place and, of course, the saying hello to our neighbours is the absolute essentialness of forming relationships Mm. and relationship is key and not just, you know, saying hello to your neighbour. Your neighbour might be a magpie. Your neighbour might be a birch tree or an oak tree or a hawthorn or a blackwood. Or the 30 neighbours that we're in constant um, connection and relationship with because our goats are being farmed on common land that surrounds um, this group of people and the goats are this talking point. Um, we don't have land to farm them, but there is commons here and the council have turned a blind eye because where the goats are providing a, 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 a social and ecological um, service, um, mitigating the fire risk, eating um, almost exclusively uh, newcomer species. But the social aspect of it is bringing the community together around the goats. So when we go to check on the goats in the morning or during the day or at, on the evening, in the evening, we bump into neighbours and we chat and we, we, that might lead to exchanging some clothes or some food or a tool or something like that. So I think what we've found by, um, you know, really taking Roberto Perez's three core tenants grow food catch water um say hello to your neighbor and that neighbor aspect is so essential and the neighborhood um commons if you like is even more powerful than the community commons um and so and of course the community commons is is just the next tier out and that's extremely important too in rebuilding what we would call a neo-peasant economic model and that is a community sufficient uh, economic model 
based on subsistence and mostly non-monetary um, exchanges. And we call where we live just that focus on neighbourhood. I think we've really uh, learnt to understand the importance of neighbourhood and we call where we live an unintentional community because we've, we haven't chosen to live with these people. It's not like an intentional community. It's like, okay, what are your values? Are we all in alignment? Okay, let's all live together. You know, the, we're the only permies in this area, in our little neighborhood, neck of the neighbourhood, and how are we all going to get along? How are we going to encourage and support each other? Um, yeah, to, to be, so we can all flourish. There's so many things that you're both saying that I am furiously nodding my head and <laughs> just that final point you made, Meg, about as neighbours not not creating an echo chamber of sameness but in mm -hmm. fact reveling in the diversity that exists in place and this morning when I left we had one of our neighbor's kids over and we were also talking to the neighbor on the other side uh, because she's letting us use her land to the land which she lives on to uh, pasture graze and rotate our horses and there's wild goats in there, all sorts of things, and our chickens. And so just really, but these folks are folks that I would never have been in relationship with had I not landed in that place at that moment in time, you know, and I think there's something so glorious about opening up to orienting to a way of being that is relational rather than uh, individual. And, yeah, I just love all the vignettes that you're painting of of this life because of this vision because it is a mosaic I don't think it's one thing and I think that all the things are interconnected and interdependent but it's not one beautiful aesthetic thing or one sound bite it's this multifaceted interdependent ever-evolving organic map of this vision that we're creating and I, and I love it and I think that people are always talking I just said to you off off when we weren't recording you know people are always telling us have you met Megan Patrick and to us you guys and what you're doing and the journey that you've been on epitomizes our own disentangling from particularly colonial capitalism over the last little while but it also feels like oh you guys are so far ahead and we're never going to get there and you know like when we're in the minutiae of like just getting enough water to feed our pullets and you know it feels like it's so hard so I would love to hear your journey to to neo-peasantry to this way of being to this unintentional community um, and how all those little pieces have kind of added up to where you are now yeah um, well permaculture principles um, and ethics uh, played a big role we came I guess about 15 years ago when we got together, we had our different environmentalisms. I spent a lot of time in forest activist um, uh, networks and uh, particularly living here near the Wombat State Forest um, in the Kennet era. Um, I'm just seeing the trashing of the forest and just the pillage for basically wood chips to be sent to Japan for hamburger wrappers. And mm -hmm. so, you know, coming back from blockades, um, stopping into Coles or a supermarket, whatever the supermarket was, um, and, and 
and kind of thinking this is weird because they were trying to stop one big corporation exploiting a natural resource. But here I am going to the supermarket for my food, um, which of course I won't go into to that right now because I'm sure all your listeners are across across it. But the, the way in which industrial farming um, and industrial food and packaging and transportation, et cetera, et cetera, is, is extremely extractive and damaging and also very vulnerable. It's very non-resilient. And I think we might, you know, we could talk about urea from China and uh, just how our supply chains are once again threatened because, of, because China is um, withholding a basic ingredient in our transportation uh, network, industrial transportation network. Um, so, yeah, I think David Holmgren's work, particularly his future scenarios work, uh, when we got together, was really important. And looking at the different scenarios, how they inter- interlap and how they work, and that really enabled us, that little book enabled us to start mapping out a, a future where we felt much more... Um, more empowered, um, uh, less dependent on systems that we felt were corrupted and polluting and um, and based on greed. And, yeah, just I guess for us our slow movement from permaculture principles through David's future scenarios and into, I guess, our own brand of, well, not brand, but our own sort of flavour of permaculture um, as being permaculture neo-peasantry is the reclamation of ancestors. So the permaculture principles are, you know, very much rooted in the present and future. And for us, neo-peasantry is about the present and the future, but also reclamation and honouring of ancestral economic uh, modes, um, particularly looking at subsistence farming from our ancestral um origins which are from the Middle East to Europe. Um, so we've got quite a lot of uh, to draw on there. But also I think recognising that permaculture is our way back, is for second people like us, our way back to Indigenous cosmology, to our, our to what, our, our peasantry is a sort of a halfway point between our Indigenous people, which are so far removed from particularly um uh, weird people uh, or um, Anglo-Saxon or even Jewish Anglo folk that uh, it, it's it's such a long, long way back that many of our stories um, are seemingly severed. So when, when we've lost our stories, it's just very easy to accept that we're just modern subjects of capital, disconnected from the past. We don't believe that. I think the story I like to tell is about how my grandmother, um, who grew up bare feet, rural, poor in New South Wales, um, you know, just one of of 12 or 13 kids, and um, somehow the peasant wisdom came through her so that by the the 1970s, she was born in 1907, by the 1970s, uh, when I was a kid, she would say, oh, yeah, let that healthy dog lick your wounds. And it's like, well, that 
is old ancestral medicine. And, and ever since then, I have let, let our dogs lick our wounds and they heal, they're becalmed. And since then, we've studied the science or the microbiome science of that. And there's such huge evidence to, to suggest that a dog's dog lick is extremely um, effective as an antiseptic and as a healing agent. Uh, and of course, there are many plants that we use as well for wounds and things like that. <clears throat> so, yeah, this sort of, and, and I think that's another good point that her, our herbal traditions are again another important remnant of our ancestral knowledges, of our first people's ancestral knowledges. And those herbal knowledges have been handed down down the line. So I guess it's this reclamation you might want to talk about witch hunts and, you know, that real severing of um, connection to particularly the maternal uh, wisdom and maternal power and just why we're in this toxic patriarchy phase. Um, <clears throat> thanks, Patrick. Um, I would like to, but I would also like to just pause just for a minute um, and just talk about something that you mentioned before, Meg, about um, <clears throat> seeing where we're at or seeing where other people are at and comparing yourself to them and saying I'm not there yet or I'd like to be or, or just sort of judging yourself against others. Um, and I just wanted, we're just reminded of something that Kat Lavers from the Plumbery in Melbourne said to us years ago, which is wherever you are in your transition from pollution ideology to more earth-centred and earth-honouring ways, that there are people who are just behind you in their journey who are looking ahead to you and you have to see it to be it. So wherever you are in your journey, you're going to be an example for people, whether you're just giving up plastic and starting to use beeswax wraps or whether you're just starting your foraging journey and you've just discovered what stingy nettle or plantain are or whether you are, you know, saving up for more water tanks or whether you're starting to, you know, hunt for um, roadkill and make shoes out of the hides or wherever it whatever you're doing in your journey there are people behind you watching and there are people behind you paying attention so we we need to honor where we are in our journeys and don't underestimate the value of living it because telling people hey you need to give up plastic and you shouldn't drive your car that's not going to bring anyone on board but if people see you embodying your values and see you thriving then that is going to really change people and particularly I think if you've got kids and you're trying to teach them um, to model a different way of living and yeah I think that it's it's particularly important when we have young people around us but even just people in our general community and family just for them to see us thriving by and embodying a different way of living and we were very privileged to have um, Sue and Dave in our community because they were, you know, quite a, a long way down the path. So this is David Holmgren and Sue Dennett who uh, yeah, live at Mariadora in Hepburn. Yeah, and community elders and, um, and there are many 
community elders uh, in Dalesford, as, as I know there are in, in your neck of the woods, Meg. Um, but the uh, having, yeah, having their example and, um, and you know, Dave and Sue uh, seeing it in other people and other, um, in other communities uh, in order for them to grow their uh, permaculture life ways. So I think, I think it, it's, it's what, what you just said, Meg, about seeing it to live it. Um, mm. Yeah, but also you have to be ready to receive the information that you're seeing too. And a big part of our, the beginning of mine and Patrick's journey was a, a big grief story and a big, a whole lot of sorrow and a whole lot of guilt for the, the culture that we were born into and the disconnection we were feeling, the out of alignment that we were feeling with the culture's values and our own intrinsic, what are we going to say? I was going to say participation in it. Yeah. And that, yeah, I think we also need to, yeah, honour the the inaction that kind of started it because we were paralysed with this guilt and this grief and, you know, what? how is this possible? It started off, uh, we saw this film called uh, The World According to Monsanto and we were really shaken by it by the, the, the devastation that this one company was able to wreak upon the world, the whole idea of terminator genes so these seeds couldn't reproduce and just the manipulation of these beautiful heritage seeds so that they were, yeah, not this um, in its natural form anymore, you know, just so, so many things that this company is doing, um, was doing and explained in this film, you know, this is 15 years ago that we saw it or something. Yeah, and so that was a big part, just this shock <laughs> that we had for a week. And then it was looking around at other companies that were doing also doing these devastating things to the world and our what what sort of world do we do we want to help create? What what sort of world do we want to live in? And is it possible to live in this culture and not be isolationists and but not take part in the and not subscribe to the general values of this culture and we really approach that by um, first really allowing ourselves to go into that grief and also deciding for ourselves what does it actually mean who are we as individuals in the world at this precious moment in history in time what do we want what are our own core values not what has been handed down to us by parents and grandparents not religion not corporations not advertisements not schools not neighbors what do we want as people and what what does the world look like for us because we can all see that the system is broken but how are we going to not be part of that wrecking ball and how are we going to be much more gentle in the world and on the world? And work towards, I mean, the, the, every culture has an overriding story um, and ours at the moment is greed is okay and um, the 1%, uh, it, it's perfectly fine that they're, doing what they're doing to the world and controlling and 
exploiting and manipulating and growing and accruing wealth. Um, uh, you know, we could easily have another story. It, it, it's cultures define their own stories, but if we, if if there isn't um, an understanding that that is the dominant story, then we're kind of just um, we're kind of just uh, fiddling while worm burns. We need to change that story, I think. We do. And, and without violence, without um, and more control and more ideological um, uh, polarization. But, you know, while, our, our, while the powers that be divide us, you know, into Trump and Biden camps and into you know, ex- left extreme right. left and extreme right. And while we continue to waste our time with these nonsense arguments that really pits one traumatised or hurt person against another traumatised and hurt person, we are not going to actually be able to um, rewrite the cultural narrative. And at the moment, the cultural narrative is is a is a, is a dominant globalising one that is ruining small, nuanced cultures, that is taking power away from local um, land-based earth-honouring cultures and basically concreting over them with this dominant ideology, um, a, a split into two camps. Um, you know, we, we have to, I think, in order to move from that dominant story of greed is okay and the 1% rules the world and, and we're just, you know, we're just pawns in that system um, to, to the earth and life is sacred and everything in it is sacred. Um, if that's the umbrella story, it doesn't actually, it can, it can, it can trickle down in any form it wants. It doesn't have to be it's just that if we are going to have a dominant story, we need to have, it, 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 yeah, it, I, I don't know where I'm going. Yeah, this, no, but. that's good. <laughs> and I just wanted to bring a word here, and that word mm. is de-schooling. So we have uh, two boys, one who's nearly 20, Zephyr, and Blackwood, who's nine. And Zephyr was in and out of school um, system and unschooled and homeschooled and all sort of <laughs> various uh, forms of schooling uh, when he was younger, but Woody has been unschooled from the very beginning. And I often have conversations with other families who are wanting to take their kids out of the school system but aren't sure how to do it, don't know if they could trust their kids, if they could trust themselves, how do they know what to do. And I often talk about de-schooling because, and de-schooling is really questioning and unlearning where we've come from and deciding and defining for ourselves where we want to go. And I think that that is not just to do with the educational institution and school system, but it's also to do with where we've come from and the culture that we are born into and where we want to go. So we need to unlearn and we need to question what is it that we don't want to be part of? And let's break it down because just to say the system's a big mess, we don't want to be part of it, how are we going to change that? We need to break it down into bite-size, achievable, step-by-step 
chunks so we can put things in place, you know, little by little. It's like, okay, so we need to get off the um, industrial energy grid. What does that look like? Do we have a permanent roof space that we could put solar panels on? Um, so maybe we don't. Okay. So what does it look like? Maybe we're going to turn, we've got electric hot water. So maybe we're just going to turn the hot water off and only turn it on when we need to have a shower, maybe once a week or once every 10 days or whenever it is that you need to shower. Um, and maybe we are living in a place, let's say we're living in a rental that only has gas stovetops. So do we have a space that we could get some bricks and build a little rocket stove out the back? You know, these sort of bit by bits that we can, you know, we, we, what are we, what are we buying? What are we, what are we eating? What are we feeding our families? Maybe we're, you know, making, maybe we're buying yogurt still and we don't want to um, buy it in plastic. So then we have to work out, maybe we'll get a goat or maybe we go into a goat share or a cow share. Maybe there's a local farm and we can do an exchange and they can give us some, some milk and we can start learning um, how to make our own yogurt or just sort of what are the, what are the what are the, the important aspects that we can change first to make the biggest changes? And for us, a really big part of our journey was getting rid of a car and getting rid of one car, seeing how it went. And then because when Patrick and I got together, we both had a car. Um, and then for us, we got rid of one, we waited a year, then we got rid of the other. And that's really been a big defining point of our story. Yeah, because I could give up building um which had, after 15 years it just about killed me um and physically and emotionally um and i could stay at home and be a stay-at-home dad grow all the food or much of the food um and yeah just pass on those skills to um not just my kids but we've also been running bush schools for the last several years so um as volunteers as volunteers so just by decoupling from these big uh, services and big tools of industrial culture, we not only radically lower our carbon footprint and ecological footprints, but we also it also frees us up to do um, things that we would call a generative culture things. So, um, like the you know passing on to a bunch of seven and eight year olds, um, what plants work in coagulating blood when you've got a cut in, and you're out in the forest or in a field what um what plants are edible what are poisonous what mushrooms are edible and what are poisonous um how do you make a yabby spear and and um you know how, how do you fish for yabbies in a shallow creek um how, uh, by making a simple tool um and then just a whole bunch of more playful things like just being with children in an age group of seven to 12. Um, and mostly the kids that have been coming to the bush schools are the lively kids who are, you know, failing at school or, you know, the, the education system uh, kind of um, doesn't necessarily have the room for like these particular kids. And so they come um, to the school and many of the parents say, oh, you know, my, my child has some behavioural issues and blah, blah, blah. And But it's like you get 20 kids out in the forest, no one's got behavioural issues. No one does. Every every kid is in in their perfect learning environment. No one and, has learning difficulties. 
Yeah. <laughs> there, there, and things come up and they're addressed and we sit in circle at the beginning and sometimes at the end as well if there's time and we do a check-in and, um, and that check-in is so important mm. and the first five kids might say, um, yeah, I've come today with, you know, I'm feeling a bit tired but I'm excited for bush school. I'm tired but excited, tired but excited, tired but excited. And then by the fifth one, you might someone might say, I'm really concerned that my mum's um, having an operation today and um, I'm, I'm feeling really nervous about it and I'm missing my mum and, you know, and going into that beautiful story. And then the next person will say, well, I'm feeling, you know, kind of sad too because this is what's happening in my grandma, blah, 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 blah. Mm. And then we'll go around the circle and everyone has had the permission to actually open up. And then so the first five that said, I'm just tired and excited, want to have another go <laughs> and say, and say uh, you know, what they're really deeply feeling. And, and so this is a way of, I guess, the circle, um, just to get back to that ancestral thing, when um, our villages and when our culture wasn't so pyramid, pyramid-like, but actually more circular, and there was um, more gender distribution and feminine and masculine power was more distributed. Um, and, yeah, and the village, everyone's role and everyone's, and I'm not romanticising our peasant ancestry because mm -hmm. there's obviously a huge amount of trembling of the peasantry, of oppression, and oppression uh, creates um, behavioural instincts that are, are not socially um, conducive. Um, but in areas where the peasantry was less shafted by feudal system, by feudal lords, and certainly by the early capitalist lords um, who really shafted them, um, the, the gender dis distributed culture was able to flourish. And I guess our, one of our main um, uh, writers on this subject is an Italian feminist um, called Federici, um, I think that's her name. It is a um, uh, and yeah, she wrote a book called Caliban and the Witch, and she goes into records of um, of of that. It's not utopia by any means, but compared to the the oppression that was happening in the feudal classes, uh, where women were just chattels, um, it is in the peasantry women women's power in the village was extremely important in midwifery, in herbalism, for dis as dispute resolvers, as doulas, death doulas, wise women of the village. And th this was deeply respected. So when we, we talk about neo-peasantry, these are the positive things that we're reclaiming. And I think for me, my how I saw myself as a young woman and how I saw myself as a feminist. For me, the feminism that I was schooled in was that I was better than staying at home and I was made for the workplace and that there aren't enough CEO, female CEOs and there aren't enough uh, women in government and that we sh this is what we should aspire to. And deconstructing what that's what I call empire feminism was a really big part of my personal de-schooling journey because when I was younger and I would go to 
my grandparents' house and my grandmother was a housewife and I felt sad for her. I felt sorry for her that she had chosen that path. She'd come ducks of her class um, at Macrob in Melbourne and she was, you know, high EQ, high IQ, but why on earth would she have chosen to be a mere housewife? And now I see that it is a woman's place to be in the home as it is a man's place to be in the home. And I think returning uh, everybody, and I mean and trans people too, wherever you are on the gender spectrum, it is, for me, it feels really important to value what the home economy represents and it represents a move away from corporate power and it's moving towards something much more much more generative and slow and yeah in the same way that when blackwood was little and i would really i would you know there's this whole call out culture you know i'm going to call out you're just a sexist and i'm calling out you know toxic patriarchy and i'm calling out it's like let's also call out values that we respect and honor and when he was little you know, if we saw someone being really kind, it was like, I'm calling out kindness and what, and would say to him, wow, did you see what that person did, how kind that was? And, you know, did you see how helpful this person is? And, wow, look at this person coming over with a big box of vegetables from their garden. That is so generous. And really calling out these traits that we want to encourage in him. And then I saw, wow, that's not just for kids, it's for us as well. And... You know, when we see somebody who is really skilled at something that we want to also be good at, you know, noticing and seeing how how they go about performing that skill mm. and learning from them. And, like, how do we, because to live in a neo-peasant permaculture responsive way, you need to have skills and you need to form relationships and that is resilience and because resilience isn't just one thing you're either resilience or you're resilient or you're not it is an umbrella term for so many different things and i think a big part of resilience a big component of resilience is bounce back ability so when you know you're in a tough situation or you're having a bad day or whatever it is like how quickly can you bounce back and, you know, of course, that might be to do with how much caffeine you've had or how much sleep you've had or what else is, what other emotional things are happening in your, in your world at the time. Um, but a big part of it is the relationships that we have with each other, with the, yeah, with, with the world and with our, with our friends and... Mm. Yeah, and I think what you touched on there, Mog, is... Um praise um mm. is so so such an important part of reculturing um uh, you know a society that is giving and generous and loving and i think overpraising um is is deeply problematic because if you feel particularly a child with too much praise it, it kind of <laughs> it, it um Praise loses its meaning, but um, underpraising is 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 a shocking thing, and um, 
I grew up in a culture uh, where you didn't praise. You know, <laughs> that was just like you, 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 children were were um, raised to be stoic and um, and a kind of numbness and unfeelingness um, can can develop in that. And I've seen the results of that as a um, develop as a kind of numbness. So so getting praise right, um, I think is. Yeah, personally, is is a you know recognizing in younger people around me um, when they're doing something really beautiful to really call that out and to yeah to behold that to be really present to to that and um, I suppose also the other side of that um, becoming older um, and having accrued a fair bit of experience is also to say. Um, it's a very fine line, this, because, you know, who's to, who's, who can really uh, critique anything? Um, that's a big subject. But, um, but yeah, when, when something, I mean, the other day a friend um, of, of mine went hunting and did something that I, I found unethical, and he didn't do it to be unethical. He did it because he just didn't know. He's come from the city. He's still learning stuff. And so to be able to gently um, say, uh, look, when we hunt, we have a responsibility uh, to that animal's life and that animal's sovereignty. Um, it, uh, so, yeah, <laughs> it, it's very it's very hard. Um, I mean, we're, we are sort of... Um, yeah, we, we've been getting a fair bit of um, pushback to the sort of posts that we've been um, posting lately um, regarding the sensitive subject of COVID. And, um, but one of the things that we really try not to do is to play uh, the person um, and actually just to uh, stay with the subject no matter how... Um, how extreme or how harsh the uh, the attacks have been um not to go not to get caught up in in the tantrum of of the situation and we we fail at that too because emotions take over but um just how, yeah it's it's just a, a an ongoing process of how do we bring up things that don't hurt and harm but that need to be said mm. it's a it's the question of our time i think isn't it that that the essence of that and i think what i'm really loving about listening to you both share about this is that we started this conversation earlier about like the things that we do you know and I think that what I'm hearing and what I also believe and am seeing in this conversation is that we do what we do uh, because we are embodying something on the inside, right? Like they're, they're doing, we're not, we're not doing beings, we're being beings. And so I just think that this conversation to me is the essence of what I want to shift is um, 
what do we need to embody to create a regenerative culture? It's not what we need to do or all the rules that we need to follow. It's like, well, who do we need to be? And I think what I'm hearing is that when we've been brought up in cultures of domination, every single one of us is in recovery from that mm. to varying degrees depending on how much our privilege has protected us from that trauma. And yeah. when we're in recovery from domination culture, compassion has to be the way because no amount of shame and coercion is going to create kindness <laughs> and there's this journey that I think I've been on and I'm hearing elements here too within you of of if we're going to feel like we really have enough and are enough and that we're willing to share those resources that's an internal state first you know, that's a set feeling of safety and sufficiency and security and, and lowness that arises from the body, from the belly on the earth and the bones being heavy and all of those visceral experiences. And so I'm curious for you both through this journey uh, of which doing has been the final piece, what have been the internal shifts and what do you kind of see as, regenerative leadership or what are some of the qualities or ways of being that you now value I know you just touched on some then Patrick but I'd be keen to hear some more about that um yeah so I think it changes all the time because the de-schooling and the unschooling and the re-evaluating and reassessing journey is an, is an internal journey that then we express outwardly through our actions of what we do and we don't do um, and what we give to and what we withhold from. But I think at the moment where, where we're at, and I think I can speak for both of us here, so Patrick is in his early 50s and I'm about to turn 48, and we are really seeing ourselves beginning to become young elders and seeing ourselves as, you know, where we sit in our community and we're really looking at, at elders in our community who are true elders and seeing how we want to become. It's sort of like collecting, collecting. So before I was talking about pointing out things for Woody about what we want to val I want him to value and what we value as a family, but also for ourselves who are becoming elders, what are we seeing in other elders that we value and that we admire and that inspire us? And so for Patrick with our younger friend uh, who was hunting, you know, for him to really work out how to say that in a very kind and mindful and non-critical but also with firm boundaries and of course how do we set boundaries in a world that doesn't understand limits that's a really interesting mm. thing so yeah just looking at ourselves because that our, our roles are changing all the time and I noticed for myself when I turned 46 and I really started to change in, I was approaching perimenopause and my periods were changing and my emotions and hormones were changing. And I really saw myself desperately looking at older women to see how they were aging and how they were approaching, you know, the sort of autumn autumnal years of their lives and how, you know, had you have to see it to be it. And I was really craving these role models 
and also looking at at younger women and I found myself saying to younger women I'm really proud of you and it's like wow I I didn't know that I was feeling that but I just felt this desperate need to tell these wonderful younger women who who are you know in our neighborhood and in our community and who come to our monthly grief ritual fire circles like I'm so proud of you and you know I of course I'm saying that to myself as well but really wanting to call on yeah call we call it out you know really call out um passion and call out integrity because I don't think that we live in a culture that does that very well in 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 a in a true sense you know it's like you know, you know when we look at advertisements and the things that the sort of general culture values are not are not um oh, I don't want to say authentic because that's such a bastardized word but just a what's that integrity yeah yeah and it, it yeah, do you want to say something? Yeah, I, I just wanted to add to that um, I, that uh, same young fella friend who I had some kind words uh, with about hunting and respectful hunting. Um, you know, a few days later, I completely reverted to a childlike self. So, you know, one instance, I feel like I'm stepping into an eldership role and then a few days later, I'm tired, I'm a bit, um, you know, impatient. And um, we had a, a men's gathering, which I knew he and I were really looking forward to, and he had to pull out. And I immediately jumped to the conclusion that, um, which I feel really quite a lot of shame for, that because I, I've been facilitating men's circles here, it, it quite often happens that men can't come be, because they're needed in the home. And and I, I've been watching this thinking, well, um, men need this work, I think, more so than women. I know that's a bit of a claim, but men have so much more work to do in, in their emotional realm. Um, and so I kind of just put this judgment onto him or actually his beautiful partner who I have so much respect for. And through him, I said, well, you know, you got to do this. We, we got to do this work too, without knowing where they're at with this particular couple was at, you know, what they've been through in that day. And it's just, you know, I projected. And so this sort of, process of looking at eldership in our community and understanding who is actually walking and living and being with compassion all the time. And, and I, there's a small handful of elders who are Megs and my kind of mentors, I suppose, um, who don't apportion this, I guess, Judeo-Christian um, judgment, which Meg and I have, and many of us have been brought up in, um, in that world of, of judging. Um, and that, look, it, it's a really complex subject because judgment is problematic, but yet we do need to have critical faculties. And where is the line between being judgy and being critical? Um, and and where, is, where is the line between imposing and coercion and 
being uh, critical in order to stop coercion and manipulation mm. and greed and whatever else. Mm. So, and I also think that there's mm. we often talk about. So there was there's judgment, but there's negative judgment and there's creative judgment, and we often talk about shame and guilt and anger. So there's you know negative anger that can destroy a relationship or there's positive anger that you can express and that can build, help build a relationship. So I think that you also need to... Yeah, and I think an example of positive shame is how we've felt um, early on in our lives uh, to uh, 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 regarding Indigenous uh, sovereignty and Indigenous persecution in this country and around the world. Um, and so, uh, you know, by rather than actually putting shame onto someone else about that, by actually internalising shame, it can become productive. And that's what, you know, they're the sorts of things that have enabled us to, you know, organise things like the Terranalia's um, breakfast where uh, in Dalesford on the 26th of January each year we gather um, outside the town hall with a big banner that states the, the historical legal fact that we're on unceded land you know, to right down to um, at the engagement and the listening and the deep listening we have with our Indigenous friends and the learning that we uh, have received by just shutting up. Um, so where you move from productive, um, from guilt, unproductive guilt mm. and unproductive <clears throat> shame to productive guilt and shame where you actually act to then relationships. Mm. It's, a, it's like that staged... It's a it's a stepping uh, it's a step by step process because if we stay in unproductive shame and guilt we fuck things up mm. so much worse mm. um, for for ourselves and for whoever it is that we're feeling shame for. Mm. I I love that example you gave Patrick because I think that that's kind of the answer is in that you know, in your reflection around your childlike self coming up in that moment and how much we can all relate to that. And I think when some, to me, judgment always lacks any awareness of the I and any awareness of our own trauma and our own experiences and our own fears. And I feel like this more messy but also more beautiful willingness to be in relationship in all the complexities of that, you know, where we are very human, very fallible beings with our own hurts, trying to navigate and live our values mm. and speak up about them, mm. but also in a way which honours when we are coming from a place of uh, our own um, shame or our own I think that's the kind of way and it's again it's not like I don't know it's not sound bites and it's not clean and, and there will be rupture but that's the greatest gift I think for me and as a parent I have not been able to move as far away from the intergenerational trauma patterns as I would have liked perhaps but what I've done really well is that I've learned to repair and I think that's one of the greatest gifts that 
we have as activists, as leaders and as um, and as parents is a willingness to circle back because the relationship is important in some way, whether that's a relationship with the beast that you've hunted or the tree that you've accidentally swiped a branch off or, or a child or a neighbour or, you know, like are we are we open enough and willing enough to be in that vulnerability of that moment? And I think that's a really big part of the de-schooling and unlearning process is compassion and that, you know, that includes compassion for yourself. When we do have those childlike outbursts or we do have those days where we just cry or we do have those really vulnerable, angry moments or whatever it is that we, you know, if there's something that we've done that we regret just to go easy on ourselves because we've, we haven't been brought up in a culture where this has been easily discussed or, I mean, most of us, I'm sure that there are some households, you know, where people have been, our ages have been brought up with these skills, but generally we haven't. So I think, you know, we're all, we're all learning this. Yeah. I think, I think there is a um, radical absence of eldership um, and it's not to apportion blame on any one person. This has been generations, generations of industrial ringleaders, if you like, that have, have destabled eldership and kind of um, professed that or, or, you know, sold, seduced us into the, the great lie that we can live forever and we can shop forever and, um, you know, this obsession with... Um, uh, not aging and doing everything we can not to step into, um, you know, necessary um, later stages in life that, that brings eldership because eldership ultimately is an intimate relationship with our mortality. And if we don't step into that, if we don't step into the fact that we die and that that dying well could be a thing that and that and dying well is a relationship with death that starts very early on in life. It's not to obsess about it, but it's to to develop um, a, a, an intimacy and a personal relationship with the fact that we are going to die. And I think that that is missing from our culture, and that um, we have no rituals around that. We have, um, uh, yeah, a a culture that does everything it can to stamp out the fact that we are going to not be here. And, and it, yeah, just mm. want to say that it does feel like in the current cultural paradigm that it is a, a body is just a material thing and that the goal of life is to extend the life of that body for as long as possible. And it's not about the richness or it's not about the the complexities of that life it's just about how long can we make this body last mm. yeah it's been very present for me this year um for me that that question it's almost like before 2021 and then now for me that that real precipice of after some a lot of loss this year a lot of close friends um being diagnosed with, you know, chronic illness and cancers, it's really 
brought that question right into my forefront and I feel every inch of the absence of those elders who can hold me in that, you know. Mm -hmm. Like I feel every bit of that grief um, for someone not to turn away from that, you know, and I think it's so wise to say that there's something in the meaning of life about our willingness to look there and to hold each other there and to acknowledge that um, that just feels like the richness that we're all seeking and yearning is within that. It's it's always hidden underneath the things that we find the most painful, right? Like I think that's the irony. But I feel like we could have a whole other podcast conversation about that one aspect. But I'm conscious of time and I wanted to ask each of you before we wrap up. Um, I A lot of my work is heavily influenced by Joanna Macy's work and and this concept of hope and grief being hand in hand. And I'm curious for each of you right now at this moment, what is offering hope? Um, Yeah, I'd love to hear. What is offering hope? Um, Mm. I think for me what is offering hope is, I think, trust, a trust um, and a belief. I'm just thinking about Charles Eisenstein here and he talks about the old story, which is the story of separation and disconnection and the new story, which is of interconnectedness and interbeing and belonging. And for me, I feel very hopeful that that is the world that we are heading towards. And at the moment, things feel very rupturous and that's a word, ruptured. Um, And I feel like the world has been put into a jar and just sort of shaken up. And the way things are going to settle is, is in a much more peaceful quiet, gentle, connected way. And, yeah, of course we see the world through our own individual lens and I definitely am a sunny-side-up person and I definitely think when the world falls it's going to fall (laughs) sunny-side-up, right-side-up. Yeah, but that's that's what is hopeful, what I'm finding hope in at the moment. Just just a, a belief in abundance and that we have a choice whether we believe in the scarcity model or the abundance model, and I believe in the abundance model where we each have enough and that we are all <clears throat> able to have a sense of belonging. Mm. And I guess for me it, it goes back to that when Meg and I started our relationship and our um our journey together as a as a couple, um, and we and we sat through that world according to Monsanto documentary, and and had this week of grief, and I think three days where we couldn't even leave the house, and then we came out of that, and I, I remember very maybe after a week or so we had a men's gathering, and David Holmgren was there, and I was I you know as a younger man I was just expressing this incredible grief and he said that science driven by money will always fall over and it just 
snapped me out of my of my funk i guess and it was like it because it was such a true truism and mm. i think when you hear things like that that when governments are being ex- extremely authoritarian and when um industry is being extremely aggressive um and control is everywhere these things are so vulnerable they are so vulnerable and they're vulnerable to us attending to them but they're also vulnerable for us to turn our backs on them and to dive into a world of relationships mm-hmm. and when i am feeling sick about the state of the world because i've been working online or researching for a new film we're working on or something like that i just have to leave the house um either by myself or with family or with a friend and and walk over to the goats and just observe what the goats are doing mm-hmm. or walk into the forest and just sit and all of a sudden the mental negativity and the mental um stress um well, it doesn't always leave actually <laughs> but quite often um uh by engaging in breath work and engaging in other more than humans um and even yeah even just doing something pragmatic like checking the goat's hooves um and and giving care to um other than humans who other species that are not so wrapped up in ideological and political um powers that that is i guess a way home is is understanding that the human story is just one little story in a world of stories um and it's an important story but it's not the story that's such a beautiful place to and patrick thank you and um, both of you for yeah this really rich and nuanced and cozy conversation so I much appreciate your time thank you you, Meg for your yeah for your thoughtful questions and your yeah consideration and I think in a world of the attention economy to give our attention to these deeper subjects and to yeah the the personal probings of each other and ourselves yeah, that's a really precious thing to share. So thank you. Mm-hmm.